Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. According to the AKC, that's the American Kennel Club, America has a new favorite dog breed. Have you heard what your favorite dog breed is, according to the AKC? The French Bulldog. Yep, that's right. The Labrador Retriever was in the top spot for 31 years, but in 2022, that has changed. It's now the French Bulldog. So I thought I would take this opportunity to talk a little bit about this organization that is telling us what our favorite dog should be. What is the AKC? What does it do? And what's its purpose? The AKC is simply a registry of purebred dogs in the United States. They register purebred dogs and purebred litters from private breeders and puppy mills. The AKC is all about encouraging the creation of purebred dogs. That's their purpose. There's a registration fee to register a purebred dog with them, so the incentive for them is there. The AKC's mission statement reads in part, and this is right off their website, the American Kennel Club is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to upholding the integrity of its registry, promoting the sport of purebred dogs, and breeding for type and function. Founded in 1884, the AKC and its affiliated organizations advocate for the purebred dog as a family companion, etc., etc. Their stated core values, I'm still on their website, number one, we love purebred dogs. Well, not sure about that. I contend if they love purebred dogs, they would not be promoting dogs prone to health issues. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Next one, we are committed to advancing the sport of the purebred dog. We are dedicated to maintaining the integrity of our registry. We protect the health and well-being of all dogs. Well, no, they don't. And quite the contrary, rather than protecting the health and well-being of all dogs, they promote the breeding and creation of dogs who are unhealthy and or are prone to serious health problems. And again, more on this in a minute. We cherish dogs as companions. Oh, isn't that nice? We are committed to the interests of dog owners. We uphold high standards for the administration and operation of the AKC. And we recognize the critical importance of our clubs and volunteers. Oh yes, the critical importance of their clubs. Can't forget that. Have you guys ever watched an AKC dog show? So at an AKC dog show, dogs are judged by a set of criteria called a standard that is unique to each recognized breed. These are features a particular breed of dog should have. And to be more precise, features the AKC thinks a particular breed of dog should have. So the AKC encourages selectively breeding dogs in an effort to create purebred dogs with what the AKC believes is the most desirable physical and behavioral traits for a given breed of dog. And that have nothing to do with the health of the dog. And this last point I want to emphasize. You see, when you're selectively breeding dogs in an effort and with the goal to create a dog with very specific characteristics, you are likely creating a dog who will be prone to poor health. Why and how does this happen? Selective breeding is a process in which these breeders breed or mate specific parents to create offspring with desirable characteristics. And to achieve this, breeders are breeding closely related dogs. This is called inbreeding. Inbreeding is the mating of dogs who are closely related to each other genetically. 
And just as with people, the mating of closely related individuals, like the mating of cousins with each other or cousins with siblings or children with parents, can result in offspring with dangerous genetic defects. Same idea with the dogs. The odds that a human newborn child who is the product of a brother-sister or father-daughter incest has about 50% chance of getting a severe birth defect or some mental deficiency. Same kind of genetic thing happens in the dog breeding world. You mate two dogs who are genetically closely related to each other, okay? That dog, that offspring, is likely going to have some major health problems or develop health issues later in life. And this breeding process, inbreeding, that's the kind of thing many of these breeders are doing. James Chappelle, professor of ethics and animal welfare and director of the Center for the Interaction of Animals and Society at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, explains that a breeder's primary concern was to produce dogs that looked like the breed standard. Quote, even if they, meaning breeders, did recognize health problems, breeders were too driven to produce what was perceived to be the most perfect breed, end quote. So we have these breeders and the puppy mills churning out these purebred dogs with major health issues. But we can't just blame the breeders and puppy mills. You have the AKC that is encouraging overbreeding and these breeding practices. And the AKC know exactly what's happening here, that these breeding practices used by breeders and puppy mills, which often work to decrease a breed's genetic diversity, okay, which has a profound impact on a dog's health. So tell me, how is this protecting the health and well-being of dogs, as stated on the AKC's website? And back to breeders for a minute, because that's one of my favorite topics to rant about. So you, you purchase your new puppy from a breeder, and you're so proud that your new puppy comes with AKC papers and that you have an AKC registered puppy. So what? Should we be impressed? Like, is your new AKC registered dog just the best kind of dog you can get? And if so, why? Why should you be so proud you have an AKC registered dog? I don't know. But I can tell you that the AKC wants you to believe that having AKC papers means better quality of dog. It's sort of strange to use the term quality when describing an individual, even if the individual's a dog, right? But the AKC does want you to believe that having a dog with AKC papers means you have a dog that is of higher quality, like as a measure of excellence, referring to a state of being defect-free, like you and I might describe an object. So what exactly does having these AKC papers mean? Well, those papers people brag about is simply a registration certificate that identifies the dog as the offspring of a known mother and father and born on a certain date. And I can tell you that AKC papers are not a guarantee of good health or being defect-free. And having an AKC registered dog does not mean that the dog is free of genetic defects. And furthermore, getting AKC papers from a breeder does not mean that the breeder is reputable or responsible or ethical. You've heard these terms, reputable breeder, responsible breeder, right? What does that even mean? What's a responsible breeder? 
The Humane Society of the United States defines responsible breeder. They tell you how to find a responsible breeder. This is on their website. The Humane Society of the United States encourages you to consider adoption from a shelter or a rescue group. But if you choose to purchase a dog from a breeder, the following guidelines will help you make sure your dog comes from a responsible breeder instead of a puppy mill. And this is like a a checklist on how to identify a responsible dog breeder. And this is actually really good advice. And it's really good to follow these HSUS listed guidelines if you're someone who is determined to buy a dog from a breeder instead of adopting from a shelter or a rescue group. But in regards to this term, responsible breeder, which HSUS acknowledges exist, if you want to consider the millions of dogs sitting in our country's overcrowded shelters right now waiting to be adopted. And according to the ASPCA, we are still euthanizing about 1.5 million animals each year in the United States. Then creating more dogs is simply irresponsible. So is there such thing as a responsible breeder whose job it is, who profits from creating more dogs? I don't think so. So in this regard, I would argue that all breeders are irresponsible. Okay, so now back to the topic of purebred dogs in the AKC. We know for a fact, and we've known for a while, that purebred dogs have an increased incidence of inherited diseases, and also they tend to have more severe health issues than mixed breed dogs. There are more than 500 genetic defects that exist in today's purebred dogs. Heart problems, hip dysplasia, airway diseases, and more. And this is because of the purposeful, selective breeding of dogs. A study done by the University of California Davis Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital delineated 10 inherited disorders that were more prevalent in purebred dogs as compared to their mixed counterparts. These conditions are aortic stenosis, that's when the aortic valve narrows and blood cannot flow normally, that's a big problem, skin and allergy conditions, stomach dilation or bloat, vision problems including cataracts, dilated cardiomyopathy, which is an enlargement of the chambers of the heart, another very serious condition, elbow dysplasia, epilepsy, hypothyroidism, problems with the disc between the vertebrae of the dog's spine leading to neurological problems, and abnormal blood circulation whereby blood does not reach the liver. The inbreeding of dogs from a relatively small gene pool is the cause of the wide array of genetic diseases found in purebred dogs. So you have the AKC who sets the breed standards so as encouraging this breeding practice, and you have the breeders. Both are responsible for creating this major welfare issue of our purebred dogs today. So the AKC works to promote the breeding and selling of unhealthy dogs. And at this particular time, it's the French Bulldog, since the AKC claims that the French Bulldog is now America's favorite dog. Okay, we've got to take a break. More on this when we return. Our friends at Crown & Paw turn your pet photos into unique pet portraits. Offering over 100 design styles to choose from, their professional artists begin with your favorite photo and create a totally one-of-a-kind hand-designed piece you will love. Crown & Paw has produced more than 600,000 portraits since 2019, so they know what they are doing. And even more, they have donated more than a quarter million dollars to pet charities. And their customer-friendly process allows you to preview and request edits before printing free of charge. 
Make your memories last forever with a portrait or two from Crown and Paw. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. Welcome back to the show. According to the American Kennel Club, the AKC, America's favorite dog is the French Bulldog. Did you know that French Bulldogs are likely to suffer from debilitating and sometimes fatal health problems? As is the case for most brachycephalic dogs, meaning dogs with short snouts or flat-faced dog breeds, many French Bulldogs often struggle to get enough air to live comfortably. So playing and running and doing normal dog activities can be quite challenging for these kinds of dogs. In addition, due to brachiocephalic dogs' inability to pant efficiently, panting is a way dogs can regulate their body temperature, these dogs are prone to heat stroke. A 2021 study from the journal Canine Medicine and Genetics found that French bulldogs have a 30 times greater chance of obstructive airway syndrome. 42 times greater chance of narrowed nostrils, and a nine times greater chance of having difficulty giving birth. Difficulty giving birth? Wait a minute, really? We're creating dogs with such abnormal physical anatomy and such abnormalities in their pelvic region that bulldogs are unable to give birth naturally? How is that possible? Overbreeding, what we've been talking about overbreeding a dog breed to the unhealthy extent that the dog cannot even procreate on its own, where the females need to be artificially inseminated and a C-section performed to safely deliver the puppies since the heads are too big to fit through the birth canal. Why would the AKC be promoting this breed of dog that comes with such major serious health issues? Because that's what they do. And by the way, isn't it interesting but actually, it shouldn't be surprising to note that the French Bulldog is one of the most expensive dogs you can buy from a breeder, like up to several thousands of dollars for this kind of dog. And that's probably because most breeders will often spend $1,000 or so putting this poor dog through a significant and risky surgery, a C-section. And in addition, as we talked about, these dogs experience a lot of health problems that are prone to infections. Many have a hard time breathing in normal conditions and are at high risk of heat stroke. These dogs are also considered to be high-maintenance dogs and require a lot of attention. They are known to be challenging to train and potty train. And what else makes these dogs so expensive? The high demand for French Bulldogs, much thanks to the AKC. Dr. Lorna Grand of the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association, a professional group affiliated with the Humane Society of the United States, states... A lot of the breed characteristics that are bred into these dogs, they're for looks, not necessarily health and welfare. And Frenchies are probably one of the most exaggerated examples of that. It's a welfare issue. These dogs are suffering, she says. Short-nosed breeds, such as pugs, bulldogs, and French bulldogs, can have misshaped vertebrae, 
which in some cases leads to paralysis. These problems accompany the process of breeding dogs to a standard. Breeders don't care about the health consequences of the dogs they are creating. They don't love dogs the way you and I love dogs. And anyone considering getting a pug should know the health risks their dog could likely face in the future. Pugs are at risk for hip dysplasia, as well as von Willebrand disease, a genetic bleeding disorder caused by low levels of clotting protein in the blood. Pug dog encephalitis is a fatal inflammatory brain disease that is unique to pugs. Pugs also have a higher incidence of epilepsy and seizure disorders. Other health issues that can plague pugs are nerve degeneration and eye problems due to their large and prominent eyes. Many argue that breeding any brachycephalic dog is cruel and inhumane. The Netherlands has prohibited breeding of very short-snouted dogs. Norway sees the cruelty. They banned the breeding of bulldogs. The British Veterinarian Association has urged people not to buy flat-faced breeds such as the French Bulldog. According to The Week, March 2023, Gudrun Ravitz, former president of the British Veterinary Association, writes that, despite increasing warnings from vets and animal welfare charities about the many health and welfare issues of flat-faced breeds, they continue to rise in popularity and visibility fueled by their prominence in the media and at high-profile events. There you go, AKC. Ravitz adds that, quote, we need to put a stop to these dogs' wrinkly faces, big eyes, and curly tails, which can cause so many life-limiting health problems being seen as appealing characteristics, and says that the British Veterinary Association does not suggest buying brachycephalic breeds. Did you know that some airlines have banned pets with flat faces from flying for the dog's safety and protection, as they can easily develop breathing problems and overheating in the aircraft? According to the AVMA, in July 2010, the U.S. Department of Transportation released statistics that showed short-nosed breeds of dogs such as pugs, Boston Terriers, Boxers, some Mastiffs, Pekingese, Lassoapsos, Shih Tzus, and Bulldogs are more likely to die on airplanes than dogs with normal length muzzles. And by the way, you're pretty much gambling with your pet's life, no matter what kind of dog or cat you have, if you ever decide to put your pet in the cargo hold of a plane. You can never predict the air quality and temperature in the cargo hold. Pets have froze to death, overheated to death in cargo holds. Pets have been lost. If you love your pet, never, never put him or her or any living being in the cargo hold of a plane. And as discussed earlier, it's not just these brachycephalic dogs that breeders are creating and the AKC is promoting that suffer these horrible health problems. Even the beloved Golden Retriever has a genetic predisposition to a number of conditions and diseases, including developing various types of cancers of the bone and blood vessel tumors that are also prone to various heart conditions. So I think you understand where I'm coming from. Once again, how can an organization that claims to protect the health and well-being of all dogs advocate and promote the creation of innumerable new beautiful living dogs who have a higher prevalence of genetic defects than your average mixed breed or who could not even be born without a surgical procedure because our anatomy is so abnormal and unnatural? I think you guys know the answer. I want to also point out 
that one of the ways the AKC keeps their business model primed, and that is the ongoing recognition of new breeds and breed standards. Did you know that just in the time period from 2015 to 2021, 10 new dog breeds were named by the AKC? Now, where do you think these dogs came from? They were not newly discovered like an exotic bird in the jungle. No, they were created over generations of deliberate breeding to making something new for the amusement of people and for the profit of the breeders and the AKC. There's no end to this. They can continue doing this indefinitely. So in my view, the American Kennel Club should not be respected and its endorsement should not be valued. I think their work is massively harmful to dogs around the world. And I hope you will join me in taking any opportunity to criticize them, like I know some of you do already. For instance, if you have a friend or a relative who is thinking about buying an AKC pedigree dog, take a couple minutes and give them a little education as you're driving them to the animal shelter. Unfortunately, the damage being caused by the AKC, and I will include all licensed breeders in this, is going to continue until enough people simply turn away from them and refuse to support them in any way. We'll be right back. For more than 60 years, the International Society for Animal Rights has been consistently fighting the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and advancing animal rights and law. ISAR is committed to saving animals' lives through ISAR's annual Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. To learn more about ISAR's programs, please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. We are back. I am pleased to welcome a special guest now, Michelle Nyehouse, and I invited her to speak about her award-winning book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Michelle describes the book as a critical history of the modern conservation movement. The publisher is Norton, and the book received many, many awards, including the Sierra Club's 2001 Rachel Carson Award, and we'll be talking hopefully about Rachel Carson a little bit. Uh, Chicago Tribune's 10 Best Books 2021, Smithsonian Magazine's 10 Best Science Books 2021, uh, and many others. Uh, Michelle is a longtime contributing editor of High Country News, which it appears she is very proud of. So check that out. I could go on. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. I have to say I'm a little embarrassed that I discovered Beloved Beasts just a few months ago when it sort of popped up in my Audible app. So listening to it was, uh, frankly, um, exciting and enchanting, I would say, and thoroughly fulfilling for me at this point in my career dealing with animals and related topics. So then I got the book and read that, and uh, here we are. So thank you. That's um, wonderful. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah. So let's start, like, sort of, what's the genesis of this effort? What were you thinking about when you wanted to get going? And, and is that what you think you created? Well, I, so I have written about uh, conservation, however you choose to define conservation. I've written about endangered species. I've written about habitat protection, um, mostly in the American West, but not only in the American West for my entire career as a journalist. Uh, so, 
this book has really been percolating at the back of my mind almost since I started as a journalist, because from the start, I noticed how passionate and how deeply political and how deeply personal these arguments over threatened species, why we should protect other species, what was our role with in relationship to them, all these big questions. I, I noticed how how contentious they were um, and how they were being fought out, you know, not just on the national stage, but in the rural West where I was doing most of my reporting, you know, people would be arguing about these huge questions in these very humble settings. You know, you would overhear people in line at the coffee shop sometimes (laughs) talking about, you know, should we close this trail or that trail and why, and you know, why, what was the government up to anyway? Um, So I just, I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by all the emotion around it. And, and I really started to think that, there was a place for history, a place for understanding of history in that conversation, because the movement we call the conservation movement does have a history, uh, and it it has learned things. You know, we have collectively learned things over the years. We conservation movement has certainly made mistakes, uh, taken wrong turns, overlooked things. Um, but it's also had some successes that I think we can learn from, even though our world is changing very quickly. And I knew that history and it wasn't really out there in an accessible form, which sounds strange because I think most of the people who are listening have probably heard of the major figures in modern conservation history, such as Rachel Carson, who you mentioned. There's a lot of wonderful biographies out there of famous conservationists, but no, there wasn't really an accessible history of the movement that looked at it, uh, you know, with a critical eye and an eye toward learning from both its successes and its failures. So I I decided to try my hand at putting that together, which was a huge challenge, but ultimately really satisfying because it answered a lot of questions that I myself had and helped me make sense of, you know, some of the conflicting arguments and ideas that I heard as a reporter. One of the big ideas in this book is filled with some really big ideas that goes back some. It's just the idea that a species was not fixed, that they go extinct and could go extinct and that people could cause that. Can you talk a little bit about how that idea sort of evolved? Yeah, it's fascinating to me, um, even as many times as I've thought about it, it's fascinating to me to consider really how recently Western society, industrialized society, recognize that our collective activities could be responsible for wiping another species off the face of the earth. I think people for a long time have all over the world have recognized that it's possible for populations to be overhunted or perhaps for types of animals to be driven locally extinct. But it really wasn't until the mid late to late 1800s that people not only realized that they could drive species locally or temporarily extinct, but that they could drive very large, physically large, widespread and distant species that lived on the other side of the world from them, um, extinct forever. Uh, And that was, it was a big pill (laughs) for society to swallow. It took a while for people to even uh, wrap their heads around that idea. It's strange to us now because I think most of us grow up hearing about extinction in elementary school and hearing perhaps about the Endangered Species Act. It's a familiar, it's a terrible idea and in some ways perhaps still difficult for us to grasp, but it's a familiar word, it's a familiar idea. 
back then it was just a strange concept. Um, and it was very difficult for people to take seriously, especially when it was happening um, at a remove. They, they weren't witnessing, for instance, um, the slaughter of the buffalo firsthand. Most, you know, people in New York City weren't were not seeing that firsthand. They might have been seeing photos of it. Um, and it took a long time for people to really grasp the implications of that terrible power that we still have. Yes, we do. Another big idea maybe you could just touch on briefly is this notion that Linnaeus brought to the world or promulgated or developed about the value of taxonomy. Can you just explain yeah. his his role and what where that led to us? Yeah, I'll um, I will try to be brief as as because as, as I mentioned in the book, scientists have spent many careers arguing over taxonomy, <laughs> so it's possible to get really wrapped up in it. But uh, essentially, species we have since the beginning of time, humans have given species names, um, and so there are a lot of local taxonomies that fortunately are still in use and still in existence and still can tell us a lot actually about human relationships with other species. But Linnaeus, who lived in the um, 17th century, 1700s, excuse me, uh, was the first to recognize that we needed something close to a universal language to refer to other species across national and geographical boundaries. Um, and so he developed the the two, the what we call the binomial system of classification that is, is still in use today among scientists. And, and that is for scientists and international language um, to refer to, to classify and refer to other species. And, and in the best cases, it, it exists alongside local taxonomies that have other roles and, and in return understanding of um, who these species are to us. Yeah, it's, it is remarkable that it has endured so much and speaks to the power of, of that. And I'll just mention briefly in your book, you mentioned some of the other lesser known characters related to the early days. And that, that was just fascinating too. I don't want to get into that just uh when readers get there they'll they'll appreciate the the detail and, and the care can we jump ahead a little bit to the huxleys maybe th huxley and who he was and why he was important and anything you want about him and his family because that's a that led me to a whole bunch of reading and video watching and excitement really... ex exciting exploration yeah what a fascinating family huh yeah um... I must say, I found the chapter about the Huxleys to be the most exhausting chapter <laughs> uh, to write because um, Julian Huxley, who's the focus of that chapter, was just, he was such a polymath and he was so just maniacally um, involved with everything uh, that I, it, I was I was relieved. I found it fascinating, but I was relieved when I finished that chapter. Um, so his grandfather, T. H. Huxley, was nicknamed Darwin's Bulldog. He was a he was a scientist himself, and he was a real champion of Darwin's theory of evolution. While Dar Darwin himself was pretty shy and retiring, and took a long time to publish his theory because he knew how controversial it was. T. H. Huxley had a real gift for the gab, and and you know happily stood up in front of these outraged Victorian audiences and defended um, Darwin's theory with a great sense of humor and a great sense of showmanship. Um, so it was really important to that to Darwin's work taking hold in the Victorian imagination. Um, and then it you know it was a very very illustrious family um, full of smart troubled people. Um, and Aldous Huxley, many people will recognize his name as the author of Brave New World. Um, and his older brother, Julian, 
uh, was a very accomplished biologist. Um, and I include Julian in the book. I should say the book is or is loosely organized around prominent figures in the conservation movement who I felt represented some kind of turning point in the movement over the century and a half that there has been an international or a, or a institutional movement for conservation. And Julian um, was included, I included Julian in the list because he really turned conservation into an international movement. Um, he recognized that it had started in wealthy societies, but that there was an incredible amount of um, biological wealth in other countries and that that needed to be protected too. Now, of course, Julian, being a product of, you know, the, the British Empire went about this in a way that really, you know, he followed colonial colonial pathways in doing this and, and really, you know, kind of uh, continued a lot of the racism and colonialism that was so... Um, you know, that was being so enthusiastically practiced by the British Empire at the time. That said, he was instrumental in building some of the institutions that still exist today and have changed a great deal over the years, such as the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is still probably the most prominent international body and, and the most prominent um, influential forum for countries and um NGOs to gather and talk about international conservation issues. So I think the value in what he and, and some of his contemporaries did, they they did they perpetrated a lot of harm, but what they did was to make context over political boundaries and make it possible for us to start thinking about conservation in a way, to think about conservation of species that pay no attention to political boundaries, which is most species on earth. Yeah, the theme of uh, the good and the bad mixed together is uh, constant in this in this story. Yes. Um, really is. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to take a little uh, break here. We're speaking with Michelle Nyhouse. The book is Beloved Beasts Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. And when we come back, we are going to talk about the amazing Rachel Carson. You're listening to Animals Today. back to Animals Today. We are speaking with Michelle Nyhouse. The book is Beloved Beasts Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Okay, so uh, Rachel Carson, most people know a little about her and that amazing volume, but uh, tell us about her. What And did anything surprise you as you were reading about Rachel Carson? A lot has been written about her. So what's your impression of her looking back now? Yeah. Um, well, as I said, I, I structured the book around people who I, I felt were stood at turning points or brought about turning points in the history of the modern conservation movement. And Rachel Carson was an obvious person to include. Um, and there are a couple of other people in the book who I think will at least be familiar names to people, um, although Leopold is another one. And what was fun about those, well, writing about those fairly well-known people is that I felt that I I had the chance to get to know them much better as human beings than I had before, and and I felt 
that part of my goal with the book was to to bring them down to earth a little bit, not in the sense of R- Rachel Carson and Aldo Leopold. There are many flawed characters in the book, but Rachel Carson and Aldo Leopold, I, I came out of the project perhaps admiring even more than I had going in. So it's not as if I I set out to show that they that they you know had to, to highlight their weaknesses or anything like that. But I it was satisfying to get to know them as as human beings because I feel like if we if we only revere them as icons, it's really hard to emulate them. You know, no one can emulate a secular saint or or no one, you know, no one imagines themselves being able to follow in their footsteps. But we can, if we get to know Rachel Carson as a person who was a really ambitious writer and struggled, you know, struggled to write a book that she felt was like was worthy of her subject and who had dark nights of the soul and, and had uncertainties and, and worried about uh, the future, just as we do, or, you know, had had um, plenty of loneliness in her life and had plenty of struggle um, and also had had, you know, wonderful moments of joy and and truly, truly loved um, the sea and, and loved the natural world um, as much as as you sense for just from reading her books. If you read her letters, that that joy just, you know, shines off the page. So I think getting to know those people at a personal level. And and also, I think what I really enjoyed about Rachel Carson was getting to know how she worked with other people. I mean, we think of these people as working alone, but they were they're all part of a movement. You know, they all disagreed with one another. They they allied with one another. Um, so she, you know, she wasn't just single-handedly changing the world. She was doing it in concert from near and far with other people. Um, but what, but to more directly answer your question, what, what she, I think, really succeeded in doing was, was bringing attention to the fact that the environment was everywhere. The conservation movement was founded by wealthy sportsmen who really wanted to protect, you know, their their experience of the hunt, you know, their sort of masculine experience of the hunt. And not that they didn't have a genuine admiration for the animals they were they were campaigning for, but they they were coming at it from a particular perspective. And and Rachel Carson recognized that it isn't just about saving charismatic animals in a place far away. It perhaps is about that, but it's also about protecting clean air and water. It's about protecting um, our ability to grow food for ourselves. It's it's about keeping our families safe and it's all around us. And I think she took a step toward overcoming that separation between people and their environment that we still struggle with today. And she did it through amazing writing and amazing thinking. And I think she's she both she and Aldo Leopold, if you read the writing today, it still sings, which is really, um, I think, an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, well, I enjoyed reading about both of them uh, so much. So uh, maybe we can jump to the present a little bit. There's so much between that and where we are now that we don't really have time to talk about, but it's very rich and complicated and deep. You want to offer any advice to younger readers, uh, teens or young adults thinking about the field of conservation as a career or as an interest? It's challenging, dangerous, dirty. (laughs) Well, I would say we need you. Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, I, I really admire uh, the younger generation for their dedication to fighting the climate crisis, 
and creating a safe future for all of us. Um, and I would encourage them to think of conservation as part of that fight. I think so often the two get separated or it's assumed that, you know, if we solve the climate crisis, we're going to take care of conservation. Unfortunately, that's not really true. I think we have to make sure that whatever we come up with to solve the climate crisis doesn't set back conservation. And I think we can use conservation to create a safer climate, to create a safer society for all of us. Um, I think younger generations have have come a long way, have come a lot further than older generations in, in recognizing some of the dark side of conservation, recognizing some of the racism and, and colonialism that's baked into its history. Um, but I think there's also a growing awareness that there are traditions that are much older than the modern conservation movement that push back against that and show us the way to a better model. Um, so it's really exciting to see those more inclusive, more reciprocal models really gaining center stage in the conservation con conversation. So in the sense that I don't know if I have specific advice other than just keep going. Okay. <laughs> and I have I have loved over my career thinking about these naughty problems, even though they sometimes lead us to very dark places. I think it's really necessary for us to be thinking through them because it's one of the most complicated um, problems we face, you know, protecting something that we also depend on for survival, protecting a, a set of, of beings and a set of relationships that we depend on for survival and need to live in healthy relationship with is extremely difficult, but extremely fascinating. Michelle Nyhouse, Thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today to speak about Beloved Beasts. It's available everywhere. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Peter. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Attention all feline fanatics. Are you ready to treat your fur babies to the perfect indulgence? Introducing Meowiwana, catnip so good it should be illegal. Since 2016, Meowiwana has been working tirelessly to bring joy to cats all over the world. Their products are made with premium organic catnip that is grown in the U.S. and Canada. Cats go crazy for their unique catnip blends and refillable catnip toys. Is your cat picky? Meowiwana knows that not all felines are created equal, which is why they offer a variety of blends featuring ingredients that cats go crazy for, like valerian root, silver vine, and honeysuckle. And don't worry about running out of fun. The refillable toys come with a tube of fresh catnip to keep the party going. Now, here comes the best part. For a limited time, Animals Today radio listeners can enjoy 15% off their order at meowiwana.com by using the code ANIMALSTODAY15 at checkout. That's right, sweet savings just for you. Don't wait any longer. Spoil your furball with some top-notch catnip today. Go to www.meowiwana.com and don't forget to use code ANIMALSTODAY15 for 15 15 percent off your order.